Adventures in Collecting is about toys, but it might not be for your children. Especially if you don't like words like or sh or hole. Are you ready, kids? Get your parents' permission, check your mailbox, and grab your shopping cart. It's time for the Adventures in Collecting podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Dave. Welcome, Welcome to, to Adventures, Adventures in Collecting. Collecting, where we talk toy news, culture, and hauls, along with our journeys as collectors. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Adventures in Collecting. Hi. Dave, we're, we're back. Yeah, we are. It's, uh, it's been a couple weeks. Yes, it has. Yeah, we're, we're, we're starting to get back into like a normal, normal groove where it's like full-length episode, news, full-length episode. Uh, you know, for a while there, we had like, <laughs> we had some, some weird weeks where we had like these long interviews and, you know, the, 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 I, I like this rhythm that we're in here. I, li- I like it. Yeah, we're, uh, we're getting back into uh, kind of a normal, a normal thing. Yeah, let's um, let's let's hope we can keep it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and speaking of normal things, Dave. Um, Eric's not gonna bury the lead. That's you're damn right, Dave. I am not gonna bury the lead. Um, yes, we are back again with a with a guest this week. Uh, our guest today has has long been an esteemed member of the toy community, going back to his start at. Play Along Toys back in 2003. Since then, he's worked on products for companies like Jazzwares and Mezco before starting his own line, Knights of the Slice, under the Toy Pizza brand. Just a couple of weeks ago, Knights of the Slice added a new element to its universe with the successful launch of Card Slicers on Kickstarter. We are, of course, thrilled to welcome Jesse Distazio to the podcast. Welcome to Adventures in Collecting, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I, uh, slight correction. I, I take issue with, uh, being an esteemed member of the toy community. Um, I've always seen myself as a, a maverick and an outlier. So, um, no, thank you with the esteem. Miss me with that. So, so notorious. Yeah, that's a little better. Sure. All right. right, Well, that's punch here. Here we go. We like that. Um, well, welcome to adventures in collecting. We're, we're, we're super excited to chat about what, uh, what you have going on, but before you, before we kind of get into your story and uh, and everything that you're working on, the first question we ask all of our guests, as this is a show about collecting, what are you currently collecting? Um, not much. <laughs> um, you know, I I really am having a crisis of collecting. Uh, part of it is when you make stuff, there's nothing more exciting than the stuff you make. And that that doesn't matter if it's comics, toys, short stories, whatever the case may be. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe not for everybody, maybe just for me or, you know, people on the spectrum, uh, at the exact degree I am, uh, nothing gets me more excited than getting a test shot or a paint sample of my toy line. And it sort of spoils the, the hobby of going to target and just picking out, you know, a mass market toy and bringing it at home. So I'm really not collecting very much right now. I I'm selling a lot trying to clear some space. Uh, just off the top of my head, just looking at like what's in front of me, what's on the table, uh, super seven TMNT ultimates. I think that's a fantastic line. Um, I tracked down all the buzz Lightyear figures. I think that's fantastic price, fantastic figures. 
and the I always mess up the name, but the Mech Assault Monster Hunter Marvel figures. Oh yeah, those are super cool. Yeah, has a nice yeah, those are fun, nice sort of '90s toy biz feel to them. Just you know, I, I think part of what why I'm so fatigued with just the hobby in general is it's all more of the same and it's all just stuff based on style guys. There's very little in artistic interpretation. And I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, so when I see something like the Mecha Salt line and the monster hunter sub line from that line, uh, you know, it, it immediately it just fires the synapses in my brain because, uh, you know, we've all seen wonderful, beautifully engineered, real scan likeness of every Marvel character there is. Um, but you know, I think the soul craves a little bit, some difference, you know, some variety. Yeah. That, that line came out of nowhere and is clearly marketed to like that, that core kids, you know, part of, of the, uh, you know, the, the world, but some of those lines right now that like that line, the, um, oh man, I'm blanking on the, the name, the one that's everyone's finding a dollar tree. Um, Oh, uh, Final Faction? Yeah, yeah Final, Final Faction. Faction. Yeah. Like, there are a couple of, like, these outlier lines out there that are doing some really cool things at uh, at retail. Yeah, and, you know, um, Final Faction is absolutely great. You know, I was the sort of kid that had Remco figures versus G.I. Joe's, right? So there's something really fantastic about being able to walk into a Dollar Tree or Family Dollar. I forget which one. Um and for like five bucks leaving with an entire battalion. Like that's, that's a great proposition. Um, you know, it's, and clearly like it strikes me as those figures in that line being a labor of love, being made by people probably our age who grew up collecting the same toy lines. And while, you know, you have your sort of budget dollar store figures and you have a line like the Buzz Lightyear line or like the, Monster Hunter line, all aimed at kids and all at a more economical price point. Um, I just find myself having way more fun and, and being drawn way more to that than the sort of sameness of the uh, quote unquote adult collector sort of, uh, you know, lines. Yeah, I mean, those are they're pretty great. And, you know, it's good for everyone to have something, you know, there's there's an entry point at any level for everybody, which I think is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell us a bit about your journey. How did you get your start designing toys? Um, how did I get my start designing toys? Well, uh, I definitely conned my way into the industry. I uh, was reading Toy Fair magazine one day. I was going to school for animation. And in the Toy Fair magazine, there was an ad for armies of middle earth, this three inch, maybe two inch, uh, toy soldier line based on Lord of the Rings. And I saw in the, in the corner of the ad, there was an address that was a couple towns over from me in Florida. And so I looked up the company on the database at my school and I got the CEO's name and number and I cold called him and said, I wanted to interview him for my school newspaper, which did not exist. And, um, the thing is you can't bullshit a bullshitter and, uh, the CEO, he was, he was great. He was very friendly. You know, he, he let me ask all these questions and then he's like, you know, like, okay, what's the real deal? Do you, would you like to 
work here? Would you like an internship? Like, you know, is that something you're interested in? And I'm like, yeah, good, great. Absolutely. This was a, an entire a facade. Um, so it all started there. I just, you know, I worked for free. I, I uh, bartended till about three or four in the morning. I got one or two hours of sleep, drove an hour down to school. Uh, sorry, drove an hour to play along, worked for, I think, three or four hours, left at noontime, and then went and did double classes at night. And it was a lot of really unfun work. It was a lot of Care Bear package comp manufacturing. Um, but every now and then I get to work on something from Lord of the Rings. I got to see it like all the um, – all the reference photos, you know, they, they were still on CDs at that time. And it was just like a thousand photographs from every angle of every single costume, every character, a bunch of characters that didn't make it into the film, you know, um, just kind of like getting a little piece of the behind the scenes magic. Um, and it all, it, it just went from there. It just was slow, incremental. You know, I was an unpaid intern. I managed to work my way up to a paid part-time employee, then, you know, just bounced around, had, had a lot of very fortunate, very lucky breaks. And, uh, yeah, somehow I ended up here. <laughs> I, I don't quite know why or how, but. So, so from, from play along though, your, your journey took you, uh, kind of bounced you around from both, uh, you know, toy, toy industry jobs, licensing industry jobs, uh, you spent some time at Jazzwares, yes? I did, yes. Um, Jazzwares was the second company I found out that that lived not too far from where I was, which was crazy because, like, you know, it wasn't L.A. or New York. It was South Florida. But lo and behold, I had sort of uh, – I had left Play Along out of frustration, and I also had my own art show, and I was trying to launch my own characters and my own toys, and it was obviously – a huge conflict. Right. And so the powers that be said, look, you can either work here or you can work on your own stuff. And I being, you know, 21, 22, I was like, well, then I will go, I'll leave here and I'll go work on my own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but ultimately it was kind of, I made the right call there. Um, so I completely lost my train of thought here. <laughs> what was the, what was the question? Oh, Jasper's right. Right. Okay. So, um, I decided to be a starving artist cause that's very glamorous, especially, uh, being so close to Miami and the gallery scene and all those cool skinny people who smoke indoors. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I made an uh, honest effort to just be a painter and sort of do gallery shows and kind of have toys as on the periphery. Cause that was an easier sell to galleries than just some guy who likes painting and, you know, isn't terribly good at it. Um, but as you kind of learn, like being a starving artist means you starve and you're not eating and you can't afford rent and you can't fix your car. So, um, on the eve of my show opening, uh, I got a call from the CEO of Jazzwares. I had sent a resume. I, I reached out through a couple different channels and, uh, you know, he invited me to the office and, uh, okay. Quick sidebar here. Sorry to derail everything. If you guys watch Arrested Development at all, are you familiar with that show? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So when Michael gives Job all these tips and he goes into the boardroom at a real estate company 
and he literally fires off all of his ammunition in a, in a second, right? Yeah. yeah. All the, this year's worth of work that Michael put together. You know, Job just goes in and he's like, uh, do this, this, and this. That was me walking in jazz words. I literally just had a list and I said, here's what you should be doing. Here's the license you should go for here. Like no self-preservation, no idea of how to monetize that. No, I just was a complete babe in the woods. And I just walked in, like basically handed them, you know, some good intel, some probably, you know, just fanboyish stuff. But um, they could have just taken that stuff and ran with it. But they offered me a job and uh, they didn't have any action figure people. And they were having a lot of traction with Mega Man. And it wasn't a brand that they understood or anyone in house really knew or, or was particularly animated by. And so I got a relatively senior position with really only one sort of, you know, legit industry credit under my belt. And, I, you know, I, I happened to flourish in that position. Like every, really every sort of bullet point career wise up until a few years ago was me faking it until I made it. And you could still kind of coast by in that. This is like, uh, kind of pre nine 11, like, you know, before, um, many of our, uh, sort of, uh, global meltdowns. Um, but you could get away with it, you know, if you had charisma and, and you had a college degree, like there wasn't a lot of scrutiny, you know, pr- probably just cause you know, I'm a white male with a full head of hair. I would like to acknowledge that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Jazzwares sort of gave me the keys of the kingdom. Nobody else wanted to do the work for action figure stuff. Or just weren't really like nerds. They weren't going to to Target on their toy break to look for Marvel Legends and stuff like that. On their lunch break, rather. Um, toy so, break, lunch break, it's all the same. I yes. mean, to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was just like right place, right time. I, I understood intrinsically Mega Man. It was like my favorite game. I, I used to – when I was a kid, I made clay Mega Man – figures like I was obsessed with it absolutely so it it was sort of like they they lucked into this person that had the expertise that they sort of needed now speaking of of video game properties you know (laughs) when I you know was kind of looking back at the you know doing my research uh you know before before having you on um you you uh worked on another video game title uh, while you were at Jazzwares, and I and I think this is actually a criminally underrated line. Uh, you know, especially seeing as how many people have taken a swing at at this uh this IP. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. the uh the Mortal Kombat Deceptions line, um, yeah. Yeah, how, yeah. how did that come up, and and what was it like getting to work on some of those you know super iconic characters? Um, I loved it. Uh, you know, um, I Midway was still Midway at that point. They hadn't been absorbed by Warner Brothers, so I would go out to Chicago and sit with the team. They were sort of rightfully uh, antagonistic towards toys and merchandise. I think that's actually like the right position as a creative you should kind of take to this stuff. And in fairness, the first series of Mortal Kombat that we did was not good. Uh, They were customs that were just thrown together for a toy fair display and then somebody in the company sent them over and had them tooled and it was, you know, not the finest footing. But once we got away from that, we started to use sculptors 
Uh, it was very early in the sort of digital realm, so there wasn't a ton you could kind of do with 3D files, but we had access to them. We had better reference. And, you know, I, I look at like um, we did a two-pack for Sholin Monks that was Lu, Lu Kang and not Shao Kahn. Kung, I, Kung Lao. Kung Lao, thank you. Uh, and those were like a big radical departure, a real huge step up uh, in terms of toy making and articulation. And we weren't competing with Marvel Legends, which was huge at the time, but it was like a, a good proposition for the price it was. You know, we were sort of in, you know, somewhere in the realm of what Final Faction is doing or what like the Spin Masters Batman line is, right? Like the Spin Masters Batman line, I love it to death. I think it's a great line. It's not trying to be McFarlane, right? It's mm -hmm. very clearly delineated. Yeah. It's a value proposition. So we were always the value proposition. But, uh, you know, I think we managed to really grow by leaps and bounds and make better figures. They weren't the, the top end. They weren't, you know, better than Marvel Legends at the time or something you would buy in Japan. But for the proposition, you know, I still stand by a lot of that product. I still think it's really great. And if you look at... Jazzwares today, complete transformation where they are making some of the best toys out there, especially in the three and three quarter inch scale. I mean, their Fortnite line uh, is incredible and it's never ending and it's, you know, oh, I guess it, it will end at some point and there's other people obviously making figures now, but, um, you know, it's day and night, just their process and the product that they're making. Um, it's great. You know, I commend them for, for, uh, really taking big uh, a big glow up as the teens say <laughs> yeah but you know to that point they're still you know in some aspects like their pokemon figures for instance like it ranges from something that's they do have those kind of value proposition figures that are like sub ten dollar price point figures where you know you can walk into a store grab you know six figures and ha leave with a mini collection and you know be out of there really under $50. Whereas you can also get, you know, a $20 six inch or seven inch scale, you know, wrestling figure, halo figure. So it's, it really is interesting kind of that, uh, the dichotomy between the two of those, the, those, you know, kind of approaches. Or even like the little Fortnite ones. Yeah. I mean, Dave, Dave and I are, we love the, the micro, the micro Fortnite line. Yeah. Those little mini guys. Those are great for sure. Uh, so in 2018, you launched Knights of the Slice. What inspired you to make your own toy line? Um, boy, what? I mean, I had always been toy making, right, for myself. Uh, now, largely that was not for public consumption. That was like me customizing my own characters, utilizing just, you know, whatever was, was on hand. Um, so... While like professionally and publicly, I was not making toys, it was always going on in the background and it was always sort of a discipline I understood. Um, and, you know, something I, I wanted to do. Uh, when I started working for Frederator Studios, uh, we just kind of happened into doing a toy program, Toy Pizza. And it got a really huge initial response. It was really... Uh, it was probably the most successful thing I had done creatively and personally. Um, I think in many ways, like toy galaxy perfected 
the idea of what we were kind of trying to do. Like, you know, I really, I take my hat off to Dan and Greg. I think that they, they have truly like gone the distance and been able to survive in the YouTube environment. Like I, I, when I watch your program, I'm like, yeah, this is what we could have been if we were a little more dedicated and just, uh, weathered the sort of storms. But anyway, um, so we had some success with toy pizza. We, it was the biggest critical mass of people watching what I was doing, you know, uh, that I had ever experienced, uh, for my own output, like, you know, things like Mortal Kombat and Mega Man, they have huge fan bases, but that's not something I've created. They're not there. People aren't buying those toys to like, you know, because of me, it's because of the brand. Um, so, you know, we, we got like 10,000 subscribers on YouTube and it was really looking like it was going to launch into the stratosphere. And it seemed to me like, well, we should probably do something with this, this audience. We were getting requests all the time to like do t-shirts and do posters and like, you know, the, the, the sort of howls you get in the comment section of YouTube that don't mean anything and never translate to sales. But sure enough, people were sort of like interested. And it was a, it was an experiment. It was saying, okay, if there's 10,000 viewers on YouTube, uh, in 2017, 2018, what does that translate to in terms of like customers? Like, will they follow you somewhere and will they want to have a totem of the experience in their hand that they carry everywhere with them? So, uh, obviously like still being a frustrated creator and still wanting to do toys, it seemed like the perfect intersection. Like we could launch our own toy line and we could promote it through this weekly, sometimes twice a week program. And this will be a million dollar idea. <laughs> um, not quite that, we, you know, we didn't approach it quite that cynically, but, um, so we did it and we, we, you know, the idea was like the toys I wanted to make are pretty much the toys I'm making nowadays, right? Pretty weird, esoteric things, just misfits that don't belong anywhere and are straight from my brain. Um, purposefully, we tried to come up with a visual language that would make sense to a younger generation than us, you know, because I grew up with like old school tokusatsu programming, you know, bad dubs and VHS tapes from flea markets. Uh, I was the generation before Power Rangers, which I think is probably like the most recognizable tokusatsu program. So, you know, we decided like, okay, viewership and consumerism, it, it comes in waves, right? So what is important to the younger generation? Well, they all grew up with Power Rangers. They all grew up with uh, big bad Beetleborgs, like all this, this slate of live action <laughs> characters and costumes fighting big Kaiju. Like that's super important. And we, we were watching the trends in the algorithms of YouTube and how that stuff was performing. And so, you know, it was a bit of a departure for me cause I just want to do my own crazy characters. Uh, but I had to sort of be thoughtful, like, okay, what are we constructing here? What is what is the ideal mascot for Toy Pizza? What is the, you know, for Sega, who is our Sonic? What does it, you know, what does that construct look like? And, uh, you know, in working with some great artists that we love fine at the time, 
my very crew drawings were brought to life as this, what we call now the classic night. And the campaign did really well. Uh, I think we funded in 24 or 48 hours, something like that. Uh, and you know, it, <laughs> it, uh, it was a great experience and then it became almost a near death experience and then it bounced back. Uh, we sort of like with anything you do, especially in crowdfunding, you're never really asking for enough money. There's always stuff that comes up. So we had a shortfall. Uh, we had a retailer that picked up the line, the line bombed fantastically. It was it was, you know, being clearanced out. Uh, and this retailer was going to come and ask for markdown money, which would basically be us giving back the money that they purchased the goods with. And, um, lo and behold, you know, a, a couple of weeks or maybe a few days before they were going to hit us up for the markdown money, that, that retailer went out of business. Now I'm not saying that my line put that retailer out of business, but it didn't hurt. Uh, it didn't help the, the cause in any case. Um, so, you know, there's, there's been all these, all these points where, you know, the, the waves sort of ebb and flow and the annihilation of Knights of the Slice has come very close many, many times and it still kind of bounces back and we, we get, you know, a new blood of customers and, uh, it just kind of keeps progressing. So the very long winded way of saying, um, you know, I just wanted to make toys. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the process, right? Like, you know, we're, we're always interested in kind of where the motivation kind of comes from. Right. Um, and, and, and speaking of, of that motivation, you mentioned that a lot of these characters, uh, you know, come straight from the, the, uh, the depths of your, your brain, but, uh, what, how do you kind of form the ideas that uh, that kind of drive this this eclectic mix of characters in in not just you know a, a toy line but this this larger world that you're building with Knights of the Slice? Um, well, before I hop into that, just briefly, I do want to say that you know Knights of the Slice in particular it doesn't exist without Glios and the Glios system and Matt Dowdy and his creations. He he developed a universal joint system that, you know, a dozen or more toy lines all utilize. And that means all the parts are swappable and usable. And at some of the low points of Knights of the Slice, it's been Dowdy's acumen and, and foresight that have sort of helped it persevere. And, you know, there was a juncture point where Knights of Slice was not going to be a, a Glios line. We launched without that being a, a definite thing. And really, the line was initially saved and saved many times since through that. So I just, you know, I think that's important to acknowledge. Um, and now you can remind me of the question because I do not remember. <laughs> well, actually, but before before we get into that question, um, for those that may be unfamiliar with what the Glio system is, you, you kind of alluded to it being an interchangeable joint system, but uh, maybe uh, can you give us a little bit more information about it for sure for that may not know? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think probably the best touchstone is to just go to O'Neill Design and check out what's on that site. Um, but Glios, you know, the, this system, the peg and hole uh, methodology of these toys, this is all because of one guy just tinkering in his garage, Matt Dowdy. He's, he's a mad genius. And, you know, 
through sheer force of will, he brought his creations into the world, you know, by going to China, by meeting factories, he could have been swindled. He could have been, you know, any number of fates could have befallen him, but he persevered. And so like, I'm standing where I am because he did all that legwork and he figured out the factory. He figured out the system. He, you know, it's all, I'm sort of playing in his sandbox. So, um, you know, I think that's a, it's a huge crucial piece of the story and, you know, Knights of Slice or some toy line of mine would probably exist if, you know, Doughty was never born, but it would not be what it is and it wouldn't be as good as it is. Um, so, you know, I would encourage people go to Onel Design, pick up a couple things in the store. Uh, there's links there to all the other creators. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's been probably like 20 different toy lines that have utilized, uh, the Glio system. So it's, uh, I, you know, in some regards, it, it's kind of like the best kept secret of toy collecting because it's so indie, it's so small batch. Uh, but once you kind of dip your toe into this world and you start seeing, oh, this is a buffet, I can have some armnivores from, from uh, this company and I can get my uh, Mighty Maniacs over here. Like it's... It's a, it's a wonderful rabbit hole to go down. And the best part is you're supporting all independent creators, you know, just people like me uh, pissing away their life savings uh, to, uh, to make action figures independently. Well, f- thank you for, uh, for, for clearing that up because uh, yeah. you know, any, anything to kind of foster uh, more of the, the, the world of kit bashing and, and creation is, is uh, you know, we're all for that. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, like I'm, I'm more of a kit basher than a customizer. I always have been, especially you know, going back to Frankensteining GI Joes. Like we all had a shoebox full of Joes and pieces that we were never going to put back together again. So the, the ability to just sort of pop off and pop on different parts without having to paint or sand or prime, like that's my sweet spot. That that's what really speaks to me. Um, so to be able to do that across a dozen different toy lines, and I mean, I have, in my own toy line, I have 13 different styles, 14 different styles of figures. So it's sort of like, it's all the fun parts of customization without any of the hard stuff, you know. And now, a word from our sponsors. And now, back to the show. So back to back to the the original question. So now the the Glio system, you know, you have you have these different uh, these different parts to play with. Uh, where do you come up with the ideas for for the characters in this this world that you're building? Right. Okay, that was the question. Um, so a lot of the characters that are in Knights of the Slice are from my childhood, and for some reason, I saved every drawing I made, every short story I wrote, every comic book I did. I even have like some very, very early pixel art comics made on uh, a Macintosh computer, just a, you know, green and white screen. Um, and I find that to be a, a sort of endless well of inspiration. And I, I try to, I, I don't think I, you know, I, I don't think most people have better ideas than when they are a kid and they, they're not sort of jaded or formed by the world. I think like, 
that's a crucial time. And you sort of, you know everything about the universe uh, intrinsically or subconsciously. I think you unlearn all that stuff as you get, become educated in many respects. So I go back to that all the time. And we're going to talk about card slicers. Card slicers originates in my childhood as well through uh, drawings and things like that. But um, yeah, like, you know, I guess Rex Gannon is sort of the de facto main character of Knights of the Slice for, for this phase anyway. And that's a childhood character of mine that I just used to draw on the margins of notebooks. Um, there's a ebook on my store right now called Harley and Marley. It was a creation of mine in middle school and in high school. Instead of paying attention in class, I was doing just these very quick little sequential comics and ended up with all these pages of them. So I've collected those and made fingers based on those characters. So, um, you know, I think, I think my stuff, I'd like to think my stuff stands out because it's uniquely me, right? There's, there's no other combination of people and life experiences that would produce the Knights of the Slice line. It's all incredibly tied to, uh, you know, my brain and my unconsciousness and, uh, my id. So, um, I think hopefully that, that just will give you something that doesn't look like anything else or, or you don't experience in the same way you experience, you know, uh, just picking up whatever the Disney plus Marvel series six inch figure of the week is like, you know, I, I think this is a, a sort of direct line to my brain and uh, is formed by everything that I've gone through in my life and all the inspiration I take. And uh, hopefully that puts you as a customer, as a collector, uh, in a bit of a different headspace. It's just, you know, hopefully it's cultivating a, a, a different kind of vibe. Well, we, we talked about this when we had uh, Ricky from the Plunderlings team on, um, where it's interesting because, like, you know, there's there's really two types of toy lines out there. There are toy lines that are, you know, new ideas, and then there are toy lines that are, you know, f for the lack of a better term, you know, and, and this is no knock to them because I'm surrounded by toys that are cashing in on nostalgia, but they're cashing in on nostalgia. Or a license or something. Yeah, sure. And... There's something that's interesting, and I, I I draw as different as the Plunderlings and the Knights of the Slice are. I there's something to me that's wholly kind of similar about them, where it is more than just a toy line. There's a story. There's a world. There's a universe that's being built. It's an original idea, but there is something that's like I can't put my finger on it. It's on the tip of my tongue. Familiar about them too. At the same time. Sure. Yeah. Well, look, I'm, you know, it's, it's flattering to be, uh, regarded in the same light as Ricky and Plunderlings. I think they're, they're fantastic. Um, part of what you're probably experiencing, but can't articulate is the creator to consumer connection, which is a phrase I just made up, but I'm going to trademark. I think that's pretty good. Um, I think that we, you know, culture at large is consuming these gigantic, group projects and from a corporate slant, really like every film that's streaming is a production of an army of people. There's very few, uh, soul creator voices 
in our society at all, right? Everything's a big production. Everything's a big process. Um, so when you see something like Plunderlings or you see Knights of the Slice uh, or you visit one of our booths at a you know New York Comic Con or wherever, uh, it's a bit different of an experience than just going to Target and, you know, picking up the the Batman figure that's, uh, you know, that's uh, just been stocked on store shelves. There's, there's a, uh, you know, a little bit of mojo there. There's a, you can imagine uh, a single person behind this project, you know. Um, if I'm being highfalutin about it, I like to think of each individual Knight of the Slice as being a little work of art. Now, that's not entirely true, and I'm not, certainly not doing all the labor involved in the art, but it is a artistic expression of mine, and it is a relatively affordable one. And every now and then I look at one and I think I've actually achieved something beautiful or something aesthetically different. You know, when I see them stacked on a shelf, uh, every now and then I don't recognize it. I'll walk by quickly. I'm like, what is that? Oh, wait, I know what that is. And, you know, all that stuff is, it's much more of a kind of a magical response, you know, instead of just pressing the feeder button on your Netflix controller and just watching whatever series you're supposed to binge watch, because that's what everybody's talking about. Um, you know, it maybe in some ways it kind of shakes us up from just this uh, doldrum, this, this routine. And really, I think, you know, Soul creators and their their voices when they're not inhibited are the thing that can kind of shake us from that, you know. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> so you you talk about you know the process and kind of you know that that art making process. You've you've been a part of the entire process along the way for whether it goes for licenses, design, and placement at retail. Um, how does all of that help inform the decisions you make with Knights of the Slice? Um, I would say it makes me treat all, all the things you listed as antagonistic forces towards Knights of the Slice. Uh, and let me explain. So I, I have, you know, I try to be friendly with as many independent toy makers as I can. And Historically, there's been quite a few that really hit something good. They had a great design. They had a great line. And inevitably what happens is they, uh, they hear the siren call of Hollywood, right, for adaptation, for animated series, for live action movie. And all that stuff is very flattering. But your full-time job becomes chasing those opportunities, not making toys and not pushing your art forward. So having worked in the world of licensing, having understood how film distribution works, having been in a thousand pitch meetings, having read hundreds and hundreds of scripts, like all of that is, I, w I don't want to say forbidden for Knights of the Slice, but I, I look at all that stuff as being directly antagonistic to what I'm trying to do, to every, to where I'm putting my life force. Now, Look, maybe one day I'll become a sellout and there'll be a live action Knights of the Slice film in 3D IMAX. And, uh, you know, I'll retire to uh, some third world country. But for the time being, 
all those opportunities to me are just a distraction at best. And at worst, they are what could be the death of what I'm building. Um, So, you know, I've been lucky enough to operate in those systems within Hollywood and within licensing. And I understand how to generate revenue for IP holders and things like that. All the nuts and bolts of the bigger entertainment world. Um, but if it's taught me anything, it's to stay the hell away from it. And the same goes for retail. Uh, like I don't want Knights of the Slice in retail. I don't want it in Target. I don't want it in Walmart. If they came knocking, would I do it? Sure. Absolutely. I will secure that back. But, uh, for the time being, um, I know how destructive those things can be if you're building something slowly and cultivating it, you know, I think that, uh, part of the American dream is like, well, you get a film franchise and you get, you get your ideas and Walmart and target and you're set. And that's sort of the be all end all goal, the scalability of, of your idea. But for me, I see all those things as being the antithesis of being able to do my art and, you know, construct the world that I'm building. And, and I'm sure too, to a certain extent, right. It, it, it boils down to control as well. I mean, this is something that you've, you know, it, it goes beyond like, you know, the term ideation. I mean, this is something that, you know, you've, you've said already, that's, you know, inherently part of your brain and, you know, part of who you are. And I would imagine, you know, that, you know, once you start to bring these other parties in, you, you start to kind of, lose a little bit of that line and, you know, get a little bit further away from it than you would be, you know, in your current situation. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've, I've seen that on the licensing side of things, right? I've seen creators lose complete control of their IP. I've seen creators freely sell their control of an IP and cash in. And I've seen creators think they have a different deal than they do and, and they get left out in the dark inevitably. Uh, I've seen it all. I've seen, and I've seen creators who have exploited their rights, and it has been for the better. Um, Peter Chung, the creator of Eon Flux, is on Patreon. I really recommend people follow his Patreon. It's really fantastic. He shows a ton of great stuff. He also did a lot of work on very early Transformers and Transformers the movie. Um, he said, you know, he, he was asked about selling your rights to something or doing work for hire. And he said, you know, MTV owns Eon Flux. And... Maybe I don't feel great about that now, but I never would have gotten the chance to make the series and I never would have gotten my name out there and I wouldn't be where I am now. So I don't want to say that like you should never exploit your rights or you should never cash in. You should never better your life through your work. Uh, But I do think it's a calculus, you know, and ultimately once you do that deal, the reins are out of your hands. You know, there's very few sort of deals across the entire spectrum of entertainment where the creator, a first time creator specifically can retain any rights and have a, any kind of a decent production. It's just not, you know, that's not the way the, uh, the scales, uh, tip. So speaking of, of expanding, you know, the the world that you're in, uh, you mentioned it before, but you know, from, from action figures now to, uh, to tabletop gaming. So uh, tell us a little bit about your latest venture, Card Slicers. Card Slicers. Well, you know, this does sort of uh, play into the idea of 
the child mind and, and creativity because I, uh, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons. So I designed what I thought was Dungeons and Dragons. Like I tried to reverse engineer it like a UFO crash or something. Um, <laughs> and I found recently my, my old handwritten notes and it was not good. It was not like there's no game meta there. It's like I, I did not, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And, um, uh, but certain aspects of it were actually quite clever and endured. And in playtesting it as an adult, I was like, wait, actually, this is pretty clever. Like the, the untrained mind really can come up with things that, uh, you know, somebody who rigidly studies a discipline will never discover. You know, I'm, I'm going through this with music and music creation. I don't know how to play music, never had a lesson, but I've spent the pandemic teaching myself tricks and shortcuts to construct a song despite not knowing anything. And there is something about the, you know, the, the naked dumb mind that you can kind of create something that, uh, endures if you take it under an expert lens, you know, uh, cause now I'm an adult. I've played lots of Dungeon Dragons, lots of card games, lots of RPGs. And the basic mechanic I came up with for card slicers, um, you know, some 30 years ago, it holds up. It still works. I play tested it last night with some new people. It's still there. Like there's magic there. Uh, so, um, you know, I decided to, to put this together, to kind of go out there as a uneducated game maker and as a first time game maker and just uh, bad pun, but roll the dice. And people seem to have responded really well to it. Uh, I, you know, I would be lying if I said that this isn't anything other than I just really like foil cards and I want an excuse to like make <laughs> a bunch of them for myself and put them into screw cases and just stare at them. Um, this is kind of like just literally I wanted an excuse to, to run stuff like that, you know, like, um, pandemic wise, I, I went through a big card phase and, and, um, the nineties Marvel cards were taking off. They were doing crazy, crazy business with grading and things like that. And I never cashed out, but I did start to go through my old binders of cards. And I was like, there is something this is treasure. Like there is something intrinsically very appealing and very precious to this Wolverine hologram that's been sitting in a ultra pro case for, you know, 30 years. It still shimmers. It still has its, you know, its vibrance to it. Um, and I just wanted to sort of recreate that feeling, uh, with card slicers and, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I, I think it's done that. Now, did this game originally, you know, going back to when you when you came up with it, you know, like you said, 30 years ago or so, was this originally, did it, did it involve the characters that kind of are in Knights of the Slice now? Like those, those characters that, you know, have kind of stayed with you? Or was this, you know, a totally separate idea that, you know, has now been married to that? This kind of predated a lot of my a lot of the characters that have been regurgitated, you know, for contemporary times. Um, 
largely like card slicers back then, I think I called it like dice combat or something completely generic and un, untrademarkable. Um, it largely was one, a sort of blatant ripoff of the imagery I was seeing of Dungeon and Dragon. So, you know, uh, things like Dragonlance book covers and things, you know, just like your standard, completely pedestrian, run of the mill tropes that you would expect to find a dwarf with a horned helmet. A lot of like golden axe ripoffs too. Um, so nothing, no flavor or nothing remarkable in terms of aesthetics or characters or things like that. There was also, I found a page where I had attempted to, uh, utilize star Wars with this game engine to like, cause I, I also wasn't allowed to play the star Wars RPG. So, um, I just like, you know, like I was obsessed with wedge Antilles. Like, I don't know why I, I guess cause he had no real story within the movies. So he seemed like a, blank canvas. So he was like a character and there's, you know, what limited sort of pre-internet knowledge there was of all the different alien races and stuff like that. It was all, uh, you know, there was a module, I guess I built <laughs> around that as well. Uh, not licensed from Lucasfilm. So I, I think you're the first I mean, we've had many creators on that have, you know, professed their love for the, the, the toyetic nature of Boba Fett. But I think, you're no, I, I would say, Dave, can we confirm that the first that has yeah, <laughs> lots of um, lots of respect, much respect for the love of Wedge. But yeah, you're definitely the first. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. No, not wrong at all. Um, I'll, okay, actually, I'll go. Wedge is that character <laughs> I always kind of looked at. He had the one scene and I'm like, who is this guy and why don't we know nothing about him? I'm going to go even a, a layer deeper because as much as I loved Wedge Antilles and creating stories about him, I, I'm trying frantically to look up the name, which I'm going to butcher, but uh, Oren Marco or Oren Mako, who was prune face in Return of the Jedi. He had yeah. a split second of screen time. I had the action figure. I was obsessed with him. And I remember um, I did not have America Online and I was on the phone with my mother and I was asking her to look at this AOL message group and recite to me everything they were like very early in AOL, people started to like compile star Wars. Like there was a big star Wars message board. And so they, there was like an alien races message board category. And I would have her like read over the phone, what she was reading on the screen. And I was like writing down, okay, Oren Marco, he's a spy and he's uh, nicknamed prune face. And so he had a big, expansive sort of uh, involvement in this as well. And still a character to this day I don't think gets his due. I'm ready for the spinoff series. He, he, is, he is bound to show up somewhere outside of, outside of the, the war room in Return of the Jedi for th 30 seconds. Not even 30 seconds, for three seconds. I think there's two of them also. Who knows who this other prune face guy is? He, he's hanging out somewhere with Yaddle, the other one. <laughs> Justice for Yaddle. Justice for Yaddle. <laughs> um, so crowdfunding continues to be a successful path for makers and artists. Um, why did you decide to go that route for card slicers? Um, well, it's interesting. You know, we have done several private crowdfunding just through our e-commerce without using an outside platform. Uh, and we've done them successfully, thankfully. Uh, so... There's definitely like a calculus that has to happen if I'm going to use a third party. 
Um, originally, we did private crowdfunding just through our audience because Kickstarter was um, their workers were unionizing, and Kickstarter was uh, resisting the unionization efforts. And uh, I grew up in a union household, so um, I pulled my Action Figure of the Month campaign. I didn't pull it, but I didn't launch it. It had approval, and I could have launched. And uh, essentially, I said, "No, I'm, you know, uh, that's not a good situation. I don't want to, don't want to be a part of that." So um, since then, they have recognized the union. Lo and behold, Kickstarter is not burned to the ground. They seem to be doing really well, uh, and so. When it comes to something like card slicers, which is outside of our core competency, I mean, we make uh, four-inch action figures, and whenever we do anything even remotely outside of that category, it does a fraction of the business. So uh, to me, it seemed like, well, cards and card gaming is hugely popular on Kickstarter. Um, if it's not their, their biggest category, I'm sure it's, it's on the uh, short list. Uh, there's an enormous audience there. The sheer amount of backers and even a mediocre card campaign dwarfs anything going on toy related. Uh, you know, this seems like the right kind of project that can get additional eyeballs and sort of tap into a new audience that's not already built in for us. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was a lot of calculation and, and look, they take, a hefty fee out of what you earn. So uh, there's definitely a downside to it. I would also say, just looking back at previous campaigns, I think we're a little light on the usual sort of organic discovery that you benefit from on Kickstarter. I chalk that up to probably there's thousands of more campaigns than you know when we did our initial campaigns. Um, but at the end of the day, it is a fully funded campaign. It continues to sort of uh, earn above and beyond that funding line. I think we'll close at, you know, a, a probably double of the ask. And uh, we have definitely sort of taken in new customers. I, I've seen people discover us on Kickstarter, uh, purchase something from the store, become a patron, which is always like the high tier of, you know, customers and what you sort of would like to see everyone ascend to. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, uh, ultimately quite a benefit. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, if you have the fan base and you can kind of quietly fundraise by yourself, there's great advantage to that. Um, but I'm, I'm not too proud to say like cards, not our expertise. It's something we sort of, we need to lean on a bigger community for, we need to activate you know, new eyeballs in order to, to be successful and, um, you know, touch wood, it's, it's happening. With that, it's time for us to head into our Q and a section. This segment is brought to you by our friends at Chubsy Wubsy toys, a traditional mom and pop toy store in little falls, New Jersey. Chubsy Wubsy toys brings you the best new toys from the brands you love without the hassle of pounding the pavement, searching for them at larger retail stores. Visit them in person at 106 main street in little falls, New Jersey, or online at chubsywubsy.com. That's C H U B Z Z Y W U B Z Z Y.com. And tell them adventures in collecting sent you. 
So this part of the show, uh, we ask we ask you questions that were submitted by our followers. Um, if you would like to uh, ask a question on a future episode of Adventures in Collecting, make sure you're following us at AIC underscore podcast on Instagram. Uh, it's where we post uh, these notifications that we have a guest coming on and give you the opportunity to ask questions uh, as important or silly as you would like to make them. Of course, you know, we're, we're here to have fun. So we've got a good, we've got a good mix. We've got a good mix of three questions for you today, Jesse. Dave, would you like to do the first? Yes. At Dylan underscore Wheellock asks, who would win in a trucker arm wrestling match? Sen 5 or Crow Mega? Um, Dylan's name sounds like he's a Autobot, right? I think we can all acknowledge that and hold space for him. Um, so this is a, this is a classic sort of uh, Joseph Campbell-style question. This is man versus machine, right? The cybernetic Sen5 versus Cro-Mega, a throwback, a, a sort of early proto-human with uh, modern-day intelligence. Who would win in an arm wrestling match? I mean, probably like, you know, I'm guessing the machine would probably have more PSI in their grip and, and their strength. Um, but could the heart of a near prehistoric type of human overcome that, you know, just through sheer willpower? Uh, this is a bigger question than I, I think I'm uh, capable of answering. This is a question we all have to look inward and uh, settle with our own internal, uh, you know, the, the two fighting wolves. We're going to have to consult them. It's, I'm a mere mortal. I, I, can't, uh, I can't weigh in. I would just like to point out that this question could have been who would win in an arm wrestling match, but uh, this this follower specified a trucker arm wrestling match. Oh, so we're talking over the top style, right? Yeah. Okay, so it's Cro-Mega in that case. I didn't understand. I didn't understand the parameters. Yeah, it's Cro-Mega. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming like the bar at the beginning of over the top, or in like when they first start the road trip and over the top does here's the real question. Does Cro-Mega have offspring that's watching the, the arm wrestling match? Um, he doesn't, but he does have a hat. He turns backwards. That's oh, his, all right. His well, then, move. there we go. Then that's the, there's the, there's the answer. <laughs> all right. Our next question comes from at PK underscore mates 13. Uh, and they ask, so what is a rift killer? What is a Rift Killer? So, canonically, a Rift Killer is a, it is essentially a suit of armor made out of space junk that is piloted by lots of tiny microbes that have a sort of hive intelligence. So the more of them you get together, the more intelligent a Rift Killer could be. Now, it's not uncommon for these, like, a, you can sort of imagine a, a, like an ancient suit of knight's armor being, uh, you know, having some bacteria in it that was able to uh, manipulate its joints and walk around and, and have a certain sentience. It wouldn't be unlike that. Um, it is not uncommon in the world of the Knights of the Slice for uh, government agencies or paramilitary forces to capture these rip killers and then kind of utilize the shell as a sort of armor, you know, which bestows unspeakable power to them. So... Um, 
you know, this is all well documented. There's a BBC documentary. Uh, Richard Attenborough did the narration on the uh, the lifespan of the Rift Killers. It's it's all out there. Just do your research. And and Dave, would you like to do the last one? I would. Um, friend of the pod and previous guest at Toy Farce asks, "Pineapple on pizza? Yes or no?" All right. So I, I'm not I'm not here to yuck other people's yums. Um, I th- and look, I am uh, I am fairly Italian, not entirely full blooded Italian, but I, you know, just going Italian, by last name. Italian enough. I'm Italian adjacent. Um, I should be able to culturally weigh in and and be the arbiter of what's okay and desirable on a pizza. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to tell you, you guys can eat what you want to eat. You have my blessing. You can collect. Whatever shitty toy lines you like, you don't have to buy Knights of Slice. If you if you like the mind-numbing experiences of just buying the same Optimus Prime over and over again, year after year, do it. I'm fine with that. Um, I actually have enjoyed pineapple and ham on a pizza. I know it's it's sacrilegious for a lot of people. It's not the worst experience. It's not something I would order regularly. If somebody has a slice, uh, you know, I might indulge. Uh, I think there are bigger travesties out there in the world. And, um, you know, I would, I, I'm at peace with, with people's topping decisions. You know, I, I don't, Dave, I don't know if we've ever discussed this, but like, I've also had pineapple and ham on pizza and it's not awful. Like, I mean, again, it's one of those things where I'm not going to go to a restaurant. Well, first of all, I have to, I have to provide context here. I can no longer eat a traditional slice of pizza. I unfortunately nor I, nor I. have I have a tomato allergy that I discovered like basically when I was 30. Um so my pizza now is like I can only eat white pizza, which I I don't know if it's actually even pizza. I think it's just bread with cheese on it. Um but when I could it's, it's fine bread with cheese. <laughs> when I, when I could eat pizza. Um I did have uh a slice of pizza with pineapple and ham on it, thinking it was going to be the most brutal thing I had ever eaten. And I was, I was pleasantly surprised. It's not terrible. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, uh, you know, we're sort of like supposed to instinctually recoil from, but it's, it's not that bad. You know, it's like, um, what were those sandwiches Elvis liked? Is that peanut butter and banana? Oh, yeah. Peanut yeah. Butter peanut, banana. peanut butter, banana and bacon. Yeah. It's great. Those taste great. It sounds weird, but it's not that bad. Sweet and salty yeah. always works. Sweet and salty yeah. does work. Um, I just don't like like the tomato sauce with the pineapple. Like I, I, I mean, it's a lot of acidity. It's too savory yeah. for my sweet. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you, you. Yeah, that's a fair point. But yeah, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna do like, like I even like like if you caramelize a pineapple, like grilled pineapple, like it's delightful. But so it's not even like the cooked aspect of it. It is. It is a lot of acid because pineapple is very acidic. Tomato sauce very acidic. It's just it's a lot of acid. It's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of acidity going on with that combination. Well, th- thank you to our our favorite Frenchman in 
uh, in Norway for for <laughs> for asking the the pineapple on pizza question. Let me tell you, two countries who should not weigh in on this pizza conversation <laughs> at all. He has no business. <laughs> I've seen I've seen Scandinavian pizzas. Okay, it's uh, it's not pizza. You know what? You're gonna toy farce. You're gonna have to comment when this episode goes live and there's an Instagram post, you're going to have to comment with like the craziest Scandinavian pizza that, that you've seen. I will give credit though. I was told this, I think it's a lie, but I, I did go to Stockholm one time. I went in the winter, which uh, I would not recommend. You get about an hour or two of daylight. Um, I was told that the reason there's Swedish meatballs is because the Italians were like some of the first explorers and they brought that over. And to the credit of that trip, I did have some pretty good pizza there. But I've since been told that that's complete bullshit and that's not why there's Swedish meatballs and things like that. So <laughs> it's under contention, but um, you know, I would, I would likely carve out Sweden with an exemption of uh, pizza because I've experienced some uh, pretty decent ones there. Well, with that, that finishes our Q&A section and, uh, and leads us to the final question of, of the podcast. Dave, would you like to fulfill your role as this podcast's James Lipton and ask our final question? Yes, I would. Our final question that we ask to all of our guests. What is your favorite and or strangest piece in your collection? It can be one of each or it can be both. Um, boy, uh, strangest piece. I, I, the one that pops out a lot for me that we did a toy pizza episode on is Medicine Sans Frontier, the, the Doctors Without Borders. They did a toy line and the sales from the toy went into their organization, which, you know, uh, seems to do some pretty good stuff around the world. Uh, but we sort of found the figure without any context. And it was very puzzling to us. And it is just a starving African child with a stretcher. And it has like exposed ribs. It, it, it seems like such a bizarre thing. We didn't know what it was. So we sort of made a video and then people were, you know, who had it collected that line and knew what it was explained that, oh, no, actually this is like, you know, they managed to do some good with that line. But um, I would say that's that's probably a contender. It's a pretty odd thing you know i i can't point to any other toy lines that feature such things that's a great answer and i'm looking this up now and i i i see it that is that is a if you were to find that out of context right right your mind would go to very bad places very very fast i would yeah. <laughs> i would imagine especially if you found one loose like not right in, it's not an it's an emaciated african child so yeah what uh, you know I didn't know what to make of that. Yeah. Yep. And, and yeah, and it looks like there's a, there's a doctor too. There's a, there's a little bit of a, a line of these. This is interesting. Um, yeah. So chalk that one up on, on the list of things that I, I, I am today years old that I learned that, that, that the doctors without borders organization had a toy line. Yep. There you go. I, I, I challenge anyone else to outweird that. one. Yeah, I mean we we've had some some unique answers, like some some definite like one of one type situations. Like we we had uh we we've referenced it before, but we when we had Marty Abrams on from Migo, he has a what did he say? It was eight is it eighteen or twenty four karat gold Caesar head? 
Yeah, just like a pure gold Caesar head. Yeah, from 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 Planet of the Apes, but like you know, it's, uh. it's one of his one of the Mego sculpts. It's just a solid gold head. Well, that's a that's yeah, that's uh, definitely more rare. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Before we let you go, um, please let everyone know where can we find you on the web. Uh, where can they back uh, card slicers and uh, and where can we get Knights of the Slice? Okay, so this will begin our lengthy plug section. So uh, card slicers currently on Kickstarter. As of the recording of this, I think there's 10 days left. So we're just about to enter the final week. Just look up card slicers on Kickstarter. Uh, plenty of different options for tiers you want to back. There is one tier where you get a action figure and a card of that action figure. So that one's uh, obviously in high demand. So check that out. Um, this Saturday, I don't know when this airs, but uh, I'll be at Shop the Curiosity in Danbury, Connecticut. I will be playtesting an early version of Card Slicers so people can uh, come and see that and also buy some Knights of the Slice and buy some vintage toys. Um, Patreon.com slash Jesse Destasio. That is the hub. This is the world's best toy community. It's completely closed off behind a paywall and that's why it's so good. Um, I love the Patreon experience. I post a ton of behind the scenes stuff. You also get free action figures. If you sign up for the higher tiers, you can enter into the action figure, the millennia club. Every two months you get a two pack of unique figures. Um, also a great place to like, if you're a creative person, share your artwork, share your comic books, find collaborators, get feedback on the projects you're working on. Uh, it's truly like a well-groomed, well-behaved, positive force on the internet, which is very rare these days. So I, I greatly prize our Patreon space and the, the patrons who back it. Uh, Twitch.tv slash Knights of the Slice. Once a week we do live streams. Usually it's to coincide with a store drop. Uh, this is where you will see me experimenting with music in ways that some would find unseemly or unpleasant. But uh, I don't know of a lot of other toy brands that are offering so much free entertainment. So check out Twitch and uh, watch our madness-inducing live streams. That can be a lot of fun. And then, of course, toypizza.com or nightsofthesice.com. It'll take you to the same place. There are, at any given time, a dozen different figures in stock, multiple different styles. Usually everything's 30 bucks or less, and um, there's a lot of ebooks and comic books and stuff, a lot of background material that you can read also. So, uh, you know, if you, are, um, if you are confined to a couch due to a back injury, this is a great – I have so many things you can do on the computer – to uh, bring the toy pizza and Knights of the Slice experience right to your laptop. So there's no reason to ever heal up. You don't have to leave the house. You can stay right where you are. You can never move. Just sip on your slurry juice and hit the buy button. And uh, that is, that's all the life you need. I will keep shoveling all of this content down your throat, whether you want it or not. Uh, toy Pizza Con IRL in real life. First time we're able to get back together in three years. Uh, this is happening July 16th at Happy Valley Barcade in Beacon. This is a bar arcade with vintage games. Perfect setting. Uh, it's going to be me. It's going to be the Glios group. 
Uh, we have some special guests. Plunderlings are going to be there, our good friends. Uh, it's just going to be people selling toys, trading toys, playing card slicers, spinning the wheel of nights, playing vintage arcade games, eating pizza, hopefully not spreading COVID. We'll see. Um, but yes, July 16th, Beacon, New York. That's, uh, that is the big one. I should have led with that. Um, so I believe that's everywhere. You can find me uh, toy P- at Toy Pizza on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. So if, if, if you are listening to this podcast and you just fell down a large flight of hard stairs, just lay there at the bottom. That's right. Take your phone and visit toypizza.com. Start, start your journey. Yep. And know that Medicine Sans Frontier are on the way. <laughs> uh, well, with that, uh, I, that's, that's, that's a wrap. That's, uh, that's, that's all we have for you tonight. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show and, uh, and, you know, taking us, uh, through your journey through, through toys and filling us in on, on nights of the slice. Uh, Dave, do you, do you want to sign us off? Hi everyone. Thank you, dear listener, for hanging out with us today. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen, and then tell your friends to do it. Thanks also to Joe Azari, the golden voice behind our intro. Our music is Game Boy Horror by the Zombie Dandies. Find more about them both on our show notes. Follow us on social media at AIC underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Stop by and say hi. Show us your toy hauls and share your toy stories. Maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode. Don't try this at home. Voidware prohibited and some assembly required. Each sold separately, not a flying toy. Consult a physician if your toy run exceeds more than four hours. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.